Fiona, your choice today is Paddy Bush. Tell us why. Paddy Bush is a really interesting poet. He is one of the few poets writing in Ireland who writes both in Irish and in English. And he explains that in a number of interviews. He says that when he started writing, he wrote uh, in the Irish language. He attended an Irish language secondary school in Colossal in Dublin. And that seemed to be the natural, perhaps nationalist thing to do. Uh, and later he realised that perhaps the poetic was being formed or by being shaped by this nationalist impulse and he left it aside and wrote in English. And, and that's quite common in Ireland. You have quite a number of poets. I'm thinking of somebody, for instance, like Michal O'Shiel, um, who started writing in, in Irish and then moved into English for reasons of inspiration, for reasons of readership. But Bush, when he moved to Kerry, and he moved to Kerry to the place where that mythical poet Amergine is supposed to have come ashore to Ireland for the first time. He felt the need to move back and to write in the Irish language again. And I think that notion of a poet who writes in two languages continues to be very original and, and rare. In general, we have a dominant language. And that dominant language pushes, I suppose, our poetic voice in one way or in another. And the fact that he has been able to keep both of these languages going, and he has a very interesting comment. He says that he writes now in function of the subject, that it is the subject that dictates the language that he's going to write in. So I think he's really interesting from that perspective. Uh, because, as you know, I'm I'm interested in that whole question of bilingualism. And I'm also interested in the questions of translation. And he's somebody who translates himself, but prefers not to. He prefers to be translated by other people. Um, but he has also translated other poets. He's translated Kahalo Sharkig, for instance. He's translated Gabriel Rosenstock. And there's an awareness, I think, of craft and of language and of the limits of language and of what what poems can be translated and what poems can't. Yes, and of course I, it's also translated from the Chinese, uh, it, although with intermediary English translations. Hartnett, who went the other way, went from English and started writing in Irish, and received a very snooty reception. I, th I, I don't know whether people questioned the fluency of his Irish or what. Certainly the fluency of his poetry couldn't be couldn't be questioned. So in the recent past, there have been Irish poets who wouldn't allow, we went through periods where they wouldn't allow their work to be translated at all into English. Uh, poets who wouldn't allow their Eng tra English translations of their work to be published within Ireland. Uh, I mean, are these still, are these still controversial questions? And, and do any of them touch upon Paddy and his, his practice? I think that they're no longer controversial. I, to the best of my knowledge, Biddy Jenkinson continues to enforce that embargo, if we can call it an embargo. Mm. I think other poets recognise the fact that translation is an important element in getting their voice out there. I think the really important element, and Louis de Puer has talked about this, is that the impulse for the Latin poem to arrive in this first language, in the case of Paddy Bush, be it Irish or English, would not be stifled by the impulse to translate. Mm. Because that if you're writing to be translated, then that shapes the way in which you write yourself. And I think that he wants to do so in an unfettered and untrammeled fashion. I think he's also really interesting because, as you suggest, he's a very cosmopolitan, well-traveled poet who was interested in the questions connected to the environment and to ecology. And I think that feeds into an awareness of writing from a minority language. It's another form of ecology and it's another form of engagement. Yeah. I think it's also a possibility that... Uh... There's certain aspects of his life in poetry that free him up thematically and subject-wise. And just, just to head back to um, you quoting him saying that subject matter for him 
um, determines the language he uses and how he uses it. Not only does it determine which language he writes in, but how he handles each language as he writes in that language. He's somebody who's very, very much uh, aware of form and craft. He's one of those Irish poets whose career has never been mitigated by uh, the tastes and whims of British gatekeepers. You know, his work has never been shortlisted or considered seriously for prizes in Britain. It's not published in Britain. It's not reviewed in Britain. Likewise, he's not one of those poets at the forefront of attention from American Irish studies specialists. He's he's an Irish poet, a mature poet, late career poet, who has 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 learned to forge a path for him without consideration for the attentions in those quarters. I think and I think that actually frees him in uh, as a poet, and it it, uh, it asserts a certain independence. And he has also been recognised in Ireland, I think, perhaps belatedly, but um, he won the po- the Irish Times Poetry Now Award in 2017. He has indeed. He has indeed. And he's won an Oireachtas Prize for Poetry in 2006. And he's a member of the Estona. So he, 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 does, he does have that recognition within Ireland. And I think the other thing that's really interesting about him is that he organised a festival called Amergeen. And that he's interested in bringing the arts together and he recognizes the value of artists working, poets working with musicians, poets working with visual arts. And that's uh, an element that we can see in, in, in many poets work, investment in, I suppose you could call it the community arts and in, in, in bringing communities together, bringing wider uh, audiences to a local place like Waterville. I've got peripheral vision here with me which I think is a brilliant collection. I think perhaps what I'd like to start with is you're really unusual in the fact that you're a poet who publishes both in Irish and in English. Um, And you've spoken about that. You've talked about your inspiration coming in one language or in another. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? I started writing when I wrote first, which was my, my late teens. Uh, and, you know, while I was at college, I wrote more, uh, far more in Irish than in English. And really it was for ideological reasons tied up with, you know, traditional nationalism and whatever. Anyway, when I started, I I didn't write then for 10 or 15 years. When I started writing again, I had certainly lost the nationalism that underpinned uh, previous commitments. So I wrote only in English. And then, you know, after a good few years, some particular lines and images and things came to me in Irish. And, you know, I started to write in Irish. And um, since then, I I tend to write in, you know, whatever language is suggested to me. You know, that said, English is my first language and I prefer... uh, you know, it, it's much more in, instinctual with me. I'm puzzled in a way about how few people do write in two languages, because I, I know a lot of poets in English who are very, you know, are very, very good Irish and they don't write in Irish. By definition, almost every Gaelgor, unless they're from, you know, the Far East or somewhere, is also an English speaker. But yet, um, you don't get much crossover. You do get you do get some. You know, I think one of the great um, uh, I, uh, bilingual poets was Michael Hartnett, and uh, I, I regret the way you know he he bade a farewell well to English, then said he'd only write in Irish when he went back to publishing 
in English, he wrote no more in Irish. That's kind of binary, either or choice. Almost a question of renouncement. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. But, uh, you know, you know, Ono Torish, Pierce Hutchinson uh, did write in both languages and um, Michal McLeamor. So, you know. Brendan Behan. Brendan Behan, indeed. Uh, You know, I think it would be Ireland has two languages that are pretty much native at this stage. You know, I, I know all the colonial history and whatever, but you have two languages that are indigenous to the country. And um, I, I would hope that they would coexist and that more people would, um, you know, who are proficient in both would write in both. It's, it just seems to me the, the obvious thing to do. Well, you have the example of Dirini Griefa, who's continuing to write in both languages, which yeah. I think is really interesting yeah. to yeah. somebody yeah. from a, another generation. I remember hearing Dirin at, at me, it was part of the age of Michael Hartnett. And when she started to write in, in English, she said she felt guilt as if there was some sort of betrayal. Now, you know, it was just a feeling uh, and that she had to sort of get over that or whatever. And uh, I think that that says a lot about our attitudes to language, that we see them or we have tended to see them as binary opposites. And I think it's a pity. It doesn't reflect the reality on the ground. We've talked about language, but the collection, your most recent collection is called Peripheral Vision. Why hone in on, on the question of sight? Um, partly it, it, it was personal to some extent. I had cataracts removed, having had that, uh, you know, just for a few days, the intensity of colour and sharpness and um, definition I was seeing, I found uh, hugely energising. Uh, I also had glaucoma, which meant unless it was treated, I, I would lose my peripheral vision. So I was thinking of things like that. And then you know, it struck me that writing and indeed all forms of art are, uh, are a kind of peripheral vision, because I think the artists, when uh, they see something and, you know, sensually apprehend something, see, hear or whatever, uh, I think of it as seeing, they're also bringing an inner vision and uh, another dimension to it. So that art is, it should be grounded in everyday ordinary vision, but it needs to bring another vision to itself as well, and each complements the other. So I was thinking really of art as a form of peripheral vision. Perhaps you might read one of your poems to us now. Right. I'll read a poem called Amargin in 2020. I have uh, long been fascinated with Amargin, you know, partly because as as I look out my window here as I'm recording this, I'm looking out at the place that has landed. He's said to have landed. Amargin was the leader of Clanavila, the Miletians, the um, mythologically speaking, um, first Gaelic people to come from Galicia in northern Spain. Uh, And they came ashore here on Balanskelig Bay, uh, near Loch Lidach, which is now Loch Caron. And as Amergen, it says he placed his right foot on the land and stepped ashore and said these words. And he went on to say, May Gaeir Mwerth, I'm wind on sea, may town dealen, may glor mara. Went on to make a statement of not of claiming the area, but of identification with the area. And I've always loved that aspect of it. And it seems to me it's a great sort of um, manifesto for our times that we should uh, identify with the the natural world around us. So I thought of Amergen in, uh, this was Amergen in 2020. There had been a huge amount of fires around the world and the the intensity of the climate change crisis we're in um, struck me. So I thought of Amergen 
what he might say if he came ashore today. Amergin in 2020, his soul bruised, his whole self buffeted by the black winds he feels circling the earth, his senses racked beyond themselves by an acridity of smoke, an uneasiness of rising water, a blaring of loudspeakers from those who drive fires and whose ships trade widely on spreading waters. He weeps for the world he once uttered into being. He weeps for the disarticulation of his vision for the self becomes solitary, for us and them, weeps for his am become it, for the hawk forlorn on the cliff, the salmon twisting desperately in rivers no longer familiar, weeps for sun, moon and stars calculated to an abyss. Knowing, however, no other words, he steps onto the shore once again, once again begins. That's wonderful. I know ecology is a constant concern in your work. I'm thinking of a poem like Giria Artach. Would you describe yourself as an ecological poet? I suppose I would in in concerns. I, I'm I'm not a naturalist. I've no, you know, apart from everyday observations, I've no expertise in it. But I'm an ecologist, I suppose not in, in a scientific way, in in a an emotional, perhaps even a political way. But it seems to me that the literature of a place and by literature i you know i include everything from folklore myths place names to to literature in the normal sense is how a landscape speaks and has spoken to us for many many centuries and it seems to me that that imaginative entry into landscape is very very important the scientific thing you know knowing the figures, knowing the temperatures, knowing the reduction in the number of certain species, that's a scientific way and hugely, hugely important. But so is how we relate to a place. And I think art in the broadest sense, literature in the broadest sense, is how we relate to the world we live in. I'm thinking back to that poem, Ungiria Artach, and I wonder whether you could say that you're inscribing that writing into uh, the tradition of nature poems that emerged in Ireland between the 8th and the 12th century. Were you aware of that tradition when you wrote? And is it something that you've thought about? I Yeah, I would have been aware of it. No, I, I wouldn't really have, have thought about that. In fact, when I wrote that poem, uh, I was thinking much more in, in a political sense. It, I wrote it uh, during the 2003 um, Iraq war. And I had been, you know, out, out of touch. I was walking in, in Greenland and been out of touch for uh, 10 days or more with news. And I was wondering how it was. And then I saw this white hair down in a hollow. And I just thought of it as, uh, I suppose, uh, a... Well, the, the whole uh, folkloric tradition of, of the hare was in the back of my mind, but I just thought of its vulnerability being hunted. And it was really the world at war that I was thinking of with that particular poem. But I do, I do use my non-expert layman's um, interest in nature in a metaphorical way, uh, a, a lot. Perhaps you could read us another poem. I wrote this uh, a couple of years ago. We organised Culture Night at the end of September uh, as a welcome night for Ukrainian refugees um, in the, the first September after the war broke out. So I wrote a poem of 
welcome for them, trying to integrate the the colours of their flag and what was happening in the country into the poem. Faltishtach, the Ukranic Ivrahik. Ur da Rev, Liatir Agastala Vied Fain, Maravert Brat Idrona Kerahord, Fuihila Negrena, Gle Gurima Naspera, Viorna Krinyachta Abro Gabuich, Anchin Hon Krih and Spear, Skult and Talav, Paulog Honor Her Agastochus Nanina. Anish Taskamal Gadulch Oskan Talun, Tablash Deran Vor Agis Niv Sikre, Uregan Machansa, Glanfer Divisha Hanair, Yaisfer and Shre, Buenfer Four Orga Arish, Idir and Dalin Achurtori Nilinisha, Ta and Doris Erlaharoiv, Bigishtig. I love the, the assonance in it, from the foilte at the beginning to the bigishtig. There's something declarative about it, performative almost. Yeah, well, it, it's, um, yeah, it is performative. Uh, it's, well, declamatory sounds. Um, uh, a bit a bit heavy for it but yeah it, it a statement i suppose it is supposed to be a statement and i suppose a statement you know this was addressed to the ukrainian people it was um read out to them but it's also i think a statement of affirmation on behalf of ourselves you know immigration and asylum and things like that can uh uh, divide people. Uh, we've seen that recently in, with events in in Dublin the other day. Uh, so it was, a, you know, and the bomb was written in Irish. So I was talking to ourselves as much as to the Ukrainians. I think. Do you have a translation of it that you could read? At one time, land and its limits stretch like a flag to the earth's imagined corners. In sunlight, under a limpid blue sky, the golden wheat glowed like gratitude. Then the sky shuddered, the earth was riven, the people's essence and hopes pierced. Now clouds are a dark mass over the land, the harvest is blighted, the earth poisoned. In time to come, this darkness will be cleared, the clay made whole, golden harvests reaped. In the meantime, you visitors of our times, see here our open door. Faltishtach. In the declamatory, you're putting yourself in the footsteps of Avergeen again. And Avergeen was also the inspiration for the festival that you ran for many years. Could you tell us about that? Uh, the festival, yeah, well, it, it just ran for, well, we did three festivals and one online. It it just got to be too, too much work in the end. Um, it seems to me, you know, it's, it's that Amergen, in one sense, is the beginning of poetry in Ireland. Now, it's only in a narrative mythological sense because we know it was written in um, medieval Irish, um, or instead rather than old Irish. But uh, mythologically speaking, it's the beginning. It uh, The Amergan became hugely important to me when I came to live here. I had, must admit, I had never heard of Amergan or Amergan's poem or whatever. And I was living here just for a while, uh, looking out at Corrigana and uh, a teacher, the Cruhur uh, O'Cronin, uh, mentioned to me about Corrigana, came in in a local version of the Amergan story that it was referred to. So I started following it up. And then it, when I found out the geography of the poem, I, I 
meant a huge lot to me and started me writing again, I think, to think that I was looking at the place uh, where Amergen is said to have landed. The the festival, I suppose, started for the same reason. And uh, our, in the, the first festival, we had five of the six living Ireland professors of poetry wrote a response to Amergen in, in a special edition book we called Unde Dicator, and it produced some lovely work. And we had great gatherings. We had music was integral to it, you know, more of Rannoch, Steve Cooney, people like that, and Galician music. We, we had a Galician input and um, it was it was great. What do you think the value of festivals, gatherings of of writers and poets and musicians is? Well, I, I think the biggest thing is simply the the affirmation of whatever is being celebrated, whether it's art in general or poetry or music or shannos or whatever it might be, getting people together and so forth. Uh, I think that's one aspect of it. I do have a reservation about festivals um, that the amount of effort that goes into them and they're there for two, three days in the year. In many ways, I would prefer a festival of art to last all the year round and have, you know, fortnightly events or monthly events perhaps in a place you know, it gets tied up with numbers and visitors and tourism and economics. And festivals have developed into being economic things as much as celebrations of art. But that said, you know, they can be wonderful. Say, you know, Fale and the Bealtana over in Dingle, the Fale of the west of Dingle, our own Aixin of They're very, very important things uh, in the calendar. And I think once festivals are primarily aimed at the community in which they happen, they're very good things. And what about for poets? What sustenance do they offer for poets? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of poetry festivals, for instance. Um, I think hugely important sustenance because poetry festivals, there, there are lots of arts festivals. There are a fair few literature festivals. Po dedicated poetry festivals are actually few and far between. And I think that's a measure uh, of, you know, poetry. It's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a minority uh, interest. Um, you're not going to get the, the audiences for it that you do, say, for uh, novelists who have made a name for themselves. You're not going to get the audience for music. If there is a poetry festival, and I'm all in favour of them, I think they should be allied with something. Music is the obvious thing. I don't mean music now as backing for poetry. I hate that. But where you have a musician and a poet in the simplest form uh, putting on a, an hour-long thing, you know, where Half an hour is poetry, half an hour is music, interspersed whatever way they want to. Uh, I think that's a very, very good thing. And it's it's energizing for poets because they meet each other, they hear each other. What can be a fairly lonely occupation becomes something social. You've mentioned the word political a number of times in our discussion up until now talking about poems that you wrote being political in nature, would you describe yourself as a political poet? I would describe myself as a poet who reasonably often writes political poems. I'm not, I don't think I'm primarily a political poet, um, but I, I have written poems. I have written poems that are party political. I used to be a, an active member of the Labour Party. And I remember writing a poet praising Michael Moynihan, who was the re retiring TD. And then, you know, that, that poem I read at the beginning about Amergen, I think deals with political subjects and, and how they're approached. Um, I have written poems about Donald Trump and whatever, but I think my poetry reflects my interests. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm not a litical as Hugh McDermott. So, yeah, 
I'm a political poet in in a qualified way, I suppose. With a small p. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Could you read another poem for us? Certainly. Less than two years ago, the great singer, great friend of mine and of ours in various festivals here, Sean Garvey, singer and musician, died. Sean, um, originally from Carsevine and ended his days in Carsevine. A wonderful man and a wonderful singer. And his type of singing was of a type that his first CD was called On Dal of Amach. And that's the way he sang. He had this very vibrant, earthy voice, almost like a didgeridoo or uh, the bronze horn that that are sometimes played. And of course, his great song was The Boys Are Born Asroida and also The Bonnie Bunch of Roses. So he he died suddenly. And I wrote this poem uh, the night of his death, actually. Earth Singer. In memoriam, Sean Garvey. So you won't, as I think you always knew, make old bones. The other world, its lines etched on your face as it echoed behind your songs, will now be your daily haunt. But you have travelled deep into the bones of that mountain that looks upon the sea, and rode out on Kuan Valinche to meet others whose songs are shaped by the earth. And now you can make the same discoveries all over again without distraction and know the dewy freshness of unbenching Luachra blossoming into the bonny bunch of roses. Sing now, Achri. With the earth's old bones, your sounding board, sing Ondalov Amach. You've written a number of poems in memory of various people. What draws you to do that? Um, I, I suppose it's a chronological fact. I've reached an age where a lot of people whose friendship I, I valued are whatever, are are dying, uh, sometimes people related. But um, I I don't, I've never written a poem. I think just, you know, somebody has died, I would like to write a poem for them. Um, I write a poem where, you know, the the death or the memory suggests itself uh, to me uh, and... I just, I just want to record it. It's not a commitment to that particular part, sort of poem, but it's just, you know, as you might if you saw an eagle flying overhead, write a poem about that and, you know, seeing the sunlight on its wings or whatever it might be. Well, saying, those oh, are the things I'm interested in. I mean, wh- what is it that draws you to writing a poem about the light on the eagle's wing or... What are the moments of poetic inspiration, I suppose, is my question. I honestly don't know. It either sparks something or it doesn't. I've never been able to work out why uh, I would write poems about particular things. Um, For example, I've written uh, quite a lot of poems uh, arising from visits to Nepal. But I spent, you know, I made far more visits and spent a lot of time uh, in Brittany, I've never written a poem about Brittany that I can think of. Just some things get to me, some some don't. I've rarely written uh, a poem about urban landscapes. You know, I've written a poem usually about mountains and sea. Um, it's just what sparks me. I, I don't think I can say what it is that does. The muse talks to you at a particular juncture. It it is the muse talking and the muse suggesting something. For example, Earth Singer. Uh, you know, I was thinking about Sean Garvey. Uh, you know, I was extremely upset uh, when uh, you know it was a Friday night he died, and that night and next morning, I was thinking of uh, the way he used to 
sang, the way the way he his voice vibrated, his whole frame used to vibrate. And I said to myself, you know, that's now gone in, gone into the earth. Uh, and I was thinking of his song, um, "The Boys of Barnes Rider," which begins the tiny time, the town that climbs the mountain. So I, I literally thought of the mountain vibrating, and then you know, being an earth singer, and that's that's how that poem came about. You've also written poems that draw on historical contexts. I'm thinking of the poems that you wrote about Smerik. Um, and I was struck in those poems by the way in which you were, you slipped into the formal mode of, of the poets that you were writing about. Um, so you mention um, Walter Raleigh, for instance, and, and you adopt the iambic hexameter. Can you talk to me a little bit about form and how important form and meter and structure are to your work? They're very important. Uh, even when I write, you know, what free verse um, without rhyme, without a particular rhythm, well, I almost always have a particular rhythm. The form is very important. I think the more the form grows out of the particular subject, then the more important it is. You know, I when I was writing Poets of Smerik and I was struck by the irony of people like Spencer and Raleigh, whose poetry is uh, so genteel, uh, um, you know, still influenced by courtly love, um, the word, you know, the word "gentle," a gentle night was pricking on the plain in in um, Spencer's poem, and the contrast between that and the brutality of war. Uh, so I decided I would deal with the brutality of war in these elegant forms. In, in Raleigh's case, uh, the sonnet to embody that contradiction between the apparently courtly, elegant, moral thing and the brutality of hacking people to death um, in, in a colonial enterprise. I usually write some lines before I decide to form. Um, you know, the, I let the poem shape itself one way or another before I decide to do it, usually. Um, so I, I'm not committed to either formal poems or informal. Just I, I, th I think it was T.S. Eliot said that no verse is free for the person who wants to do a good job. And I think that's very true. Could you read another poem for us? Okay. You know, I often notice uh, people can get very... Um, purist about uh, in and things to do with dialect and think that everything, you know, if you speak a, one dialect, everything must be in that dialect, even, even though, you know, some of the most vibrant places for Irish are far away from where the particular dialects are. Anyway, I was thinking of um, the, the, the way the word fwerifa, has come into Irish and it is part of what I think is very much part of Gaelskull Irish, which is now spreading in into um, Gaeltacht Irish. And Gaeltacht people will say something is for it, even though it obviously just came from kids saying perfect. And um, so this somewhat light-hearted poem. Sáir Shaman and the Mahasa Ersan Lainach in Urlaur and the Gaelskalichta Tau Ersan Honachtach Bjog Bjown er Gramadach Galanta Ersan Taltach the Kerbeim er Erach Nagalia Gedil Ersan Winach Fuiska and Tail Ella Nimasenai Hele Eid Adorza Tereshma Vachnov I really like like that one. You know, all of the variations, Tower, Furifa, uh, Gadil. 
I suppose it's a commentary also on the way language shifts and moves. Yeah. Um, and being bilingual heightens your awareness of that. I think the other thing that makes you remarkable as a poet is the fact that you translate yourself, which not many people do. Yeah, well, it, it, nobody, nobody has been terribly anxious to translate. <laughs> Perhaps that's that's why. Um, but I'm I know there are people who think it's it's not a good thing to do, and particularly the, it's quite um, controversial in in Gaelic. Uh, Christopher White thinks it's a betrayal for uh, Gaelic poets to translate themselves. I don't see why not, uh, and I trust myself, obviously. I I won't translate poems that I feel I cannot make a, a good fist of. For example, I, I, I couldn't translate that poem. Oh, uh, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't work because yeah. the words are so anchored in the in the language. Yeah, that, that as a, I, I suppose the salt and pepper of those words would be lost in English. Oh yeah, completely lost. It it it's essentially a, a joking, you know, well, half serious joking poem uh, in Irish. So you know, I wouldn't translate something like that. But yeah, I do translate myself, and I don't find a problem with it. Probably because I translate other poets as well, like you know, Carlo Sharkey, Catherine Veldun, Gabriel Rosenstock. And a wonderful long poem I've just translated by Ethnini Galachar. My philosophy in translate, you know, there's this never ending argument about whether you translate accurately or whether you make a poem in the language you're translating into. And my philosophy is that I agree 100% with both points of view. So I will work very hard at it to do both things and you know if I can do it for other people's poetry I don't see why I wouldn't do it for my own but do you feel you have a greater freedom when you're translating for yourself that in a sense that you're not possibly translating but recreating or rewriting I don't um for for me I I don't tend to recreate you know I did Years ago, in in you know, I wrote sort of versions of Don Logue and things like that. Put it into a twentieth century context. Um, I have personally have no interest in free translation, and if possible, I I won't translate something if I can't recreate it fairly accurately. And particularly, I think. There's a, an aspect of translating from Irish to English and where you have face-to-face translation is that you have a huge amount of people in Ireland who have a certain amount of Irish that wouldn't be able, maybe I wouldn't feel comfortable reading the original, but who, if they have a translation that will send them back to the original, will be able to say, oh, yes, you know, because they have a lot of hidden Irish. And I I think in that context, I feel an obligation to write a translation that will give somebody whose Irish might be rusty or mediocre, that will give them the chance to go back to the original and appreciate the original for itself. It's as if the poem on the facing page is your subconscious or your super ego telling you <laughs> what you should do and giving you your responsibility to the original poem. Yeah, I, I, I do feel that responsibility. I mean, you know, and I'm speaking only for myself, but if I translate a poem, uh, I want it to be as close as possible, consistent with it being a poem uh, with the original. Now, Anira Duig is uh, an expression I use in a number of poems in Irish. There's no point in translating it from the Northwest. So, you know, things like that, you you have to fiddle around with them. Uh, but, you know, apart from things like that, I would go uh, to mirror the original. You can't always do it exactly. And uh, as far as possible, if the original rhymes, I would find try to find some sort of equivalent metaphors and things like that. Uh, you you sometimes you have to find an equivalent metaphor. So 
you know, the same with rhymes. I might, you know, I won't try and rhyme the same sounds, but when I'm doing a translation into English, I, I will start, you know, off with saying, I want to get the sense right. I want to get the rhythm right. I want to get the rhyme right as far as possible. And you've been published in a variety of of magazines and journals. Were they important for you when you were beginning your career as a poet? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I think the first poem I had published uh, around the same time, I had a poem published in New Irish Writing, David Marcus, in the, in the Irish Press and um, in Ciphers. Uh, to when you know once I started writing again, but fifteen years before that, when I was a student, uh, I had some work published in Core and Fasta, and it's very very important as 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 a kind of validation. If you only want to write poems for yourself, then obviously publication isn't important. But if you only want to write poems for yourself, you could, um, you know just make notes about the experience and it will recreate it. I think most poets do it as an attempt to create something which would be appreciated by others. Were they important for, I suppose, the recognition of you as a poet? And and when did you feel that you could say, I am a poet? Like, like so many people, I... I took a long time before I did it, and I had a good few books published, you know, and it went from I write poetry or, you know, I do I do a lot of writing, mainly poetry. Uh, yeah, I've had a few books uh, before. I, I would say if somebody says now, what do you do? Uh, I'd say I'm a writer, I'm a poet. But I'd say I probably had five books published, six books maybe. Um, before I dared to say that. Do you think that being a poet has a special value within Irish society? Yes, but an active value among uh, a fairly small minority. Now, I'm, you know, obviously exceptional people like Seamus Heaney, uh, who did, um, you know, have a, an enormous public um, role effect, presence, uh, that was unusual. And I, I, I suppose, you know, it, it's a minority, but I suppose more than other countries in the English-speaking world, yes, Ireland does value its poets, but, you know, we're, we're all familiar with, with Dennis O'Driscoll called the, the outnumbered poet um, phenomenon at readings where, you know, you might have four or five people and, uh, you know, 24 people at a reading is is a very good audience for most poets most of the time. I would like to see poetry more valued rather than most people saying, oh, poetry, I wouldn't know about that. We could finish with one final poem. I'll read a poem called Sheltering. It's a a very, very bleak poem, I'm afraid. Um, I wrote it during the, the siege of Mariupol. It's, it's dated March 2022. And I, I wrote it when I was isolating for a fortnight with COVID. So I was all the time on the computer seeing news reports from this. And uh, I had plenty of time. So I do what I often do. I, I look at words and where they come from. And I was sort of shocked in a way to discover that the word target originally meant a shield. Mm. And, you know, there was on the thing that uh, on the news that the bombardment in, in Mariupol was targeting where people were sheltering. So there in, in the etymology of the word, you have the horror of what was going on. I, and then I realized, you know, it was a great luxury and totally irrelevant to the people who were doing the bombing and the people who were suffering it, the, these verbal niceties. So I was saying to myself, uh, you know, what's the relevance of me doing this? Anyway, um, 
and the same thing about bombardments and targets and shelter is so much so relevant to, again today still going on in in Ukraine but with um in Gaza as well sheltering I read about new weaponry, the old linguistic origins of thermobaric. News channels repeat and repeat enumerations of the unthinkable that I cannot absorb. I retreat into the familiar shelter of words. A target, diminutive of targ, originally meant a small round shield, a word that builds itself into shelter, a shelter being a formation of shields. When target galvanized itself into verb, it first meant to shield, to offer shelter. No word of this, nor any measured shift of meaning over the centuries is of any significance at this moment for those whose shelters are targets or for those others who are targeting the sheltering basements of Mariupol. Aerial footage pulses with digital circles fragmenting into outbursts of smoke above targets that had been theatres had been hospitals, had been schools. Meaning has sunk unfathomably below words howling itself towards silence. Southward issue 43. Tracy Gohan, Perrault's Wolf. But I remember a distinct dolphin-skinned sky, sun a feeble flashlight behind a voil curtain, and a sheen of cobble in sewing pin showers, skimming past in thin sheets like transparent Bible paper. I took some cake and butter home, then standing at the door tap-tap, Soaked through in my little red dress, I could have raised the passions of Christ. Pull the bobbin, he said, and the latch will go up. He disliked me in red. How is a woman in red a sin, but a man in a papal mosetta a martyr for love? Put the cake on the stool and get into bed with me. I'd never feared intimate spaces where we die only of politeness. So I rose from my dress, Aphrodite from the wave, and he was on me. What big arms, I thought, what big eyes. I remembered because I was defenceless inside them, a solitary star inside a vast, ruined cosmos. Outside, a woodcutter bow-sawed a larch, but the big ears heard no heart snap, no wishbone break. Only Bible paper rain on the glass tap-tap, the sun too weak under turbulent clouds. Big legs wound tight around me like a bandage on a corpse. What big teeth! The Southward Poetry Podcast is produced by the Monster Literature Centre. The music is by Jake Koza. The Monster Literature Centre is a grateful recipient of funding from the Arts Council of Ireland and the Arts Office of Cork City Council. Music